Well, I will read this passage here, Mark, chapter 1, verse 16. Some of you may be excited that we're moving on from the last two verses. Uh, So I did love diving into that, the preaching of the Lord Jesus, just being crystal clear on what what Jesus was preaching about. Uh, But yeah, let's move on to verse 16 this morning. It says, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. So we read here the first public act of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We saw earlier in this chapter uh, that Mark is really wanting to throw us right into his public ministry. And so he gives us a brief introduction, summarizing John the Baptist, summarizing the commission of Christ, his baptism and temptation, and then summarizing his preaching. But now he, he records the first thing the Lord Jesus Christ actually did. And so what was the first thing he did? What was the great priority in his ministry? Well, it was obviously preaching. That was the great priority. He immediately began preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. But the second great priority in his life that we see right here is that he prioritized gathering a small group of men around him in order to multiply his influence. He would only be on earth for a few years. He would only be preaching publicly for a few years before he would return to the Father. And so his message and his mission needed to continue after his ascension into heaven. And so he starts right away training men, gathering them around him. But he sure did pick an interesting bunch. He could have picked anyone. Uh, God could have sent his son to the most prestigious places of the world, uh, to Athens, to Rome, to Alexandria, to some other great city, or even in Jerusalem. He could have approached the, the intellectuals, the elites, the PhDs, the movers and shakers, the politicians, and used them. He could have converted them. God could have converted anyone. It's not that these were the only people open to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus chose these men sovereignly. He just walked up to them and called them. And so we naturally want to ask, well, why did he call these men? Why did he call four fishermen on a little lake on the other side of the world where most of us would never even see or think about? Was it because of their superior education Or their amazing potential? Was it because they came from a long line of prestigious Bible teachers? Fifth generation rabbi? No. Maybe it was because they were natural born soul winners. People just flocked to them. People just immediately responded to their Bible teaching and their evangelism. Well, nothing really indicates that. 
And yet when we read the, the history of the early church in the book of Acts, right? The book of Acts in the New Testament records the, the birth of the church. We see that these men were used as instruments to bring thousands upon thousands of people into the church and bring people to Christ. And so we have to ask, how did they, how did these people become what they became, what they would one day become? It was not because they had amazing potential. The, the opposite seems to be indicated in Mark, uh, Mark's gospel. It's, it's intriguing because he, more than any other, gives us the clearest picture of the disciples' weakness and sin. And we'll, we'll even get into these episodes where Jesus will be trying to teach them something. Like, don't worry about bread. I, I can provide bread for you. But they don't get it. They're still going to worry and fret about bread and be full of anxiety about silly things like that. Uh, Jesus will have to tell Peter to get behind me Satan, calling Peter an agent of Satan on one, on one occurrence because of Peter's unwillingness to suffer for the gospel, unwillingness to follow a, a Messiah that will be crucified. And so they would become what they became through a slow and gradual process, a painful process for many of them. But the point is that Christ's power is so great that he can take even the most unlikely, weak, sinful creature and make that creature an instrument of salvation to do things that you would never think would be possible. And the biographies of Scripture, if we just look at all the different lives that are recorded in Scripture, we're forced to conclude that God seems to actually prefer to use weaker people. He actually prefers to use the runt of the litter to do his greatest works. And so we're going to see in this text that Jesus is calling you to make two commitments so that he can transform you into a successful evangelist. But we all have that desire. I mean, if you're a Christian, you have a natural instinct to want to be an evangelist, to want to be a successful evangelist, but you're also fearful, not sure how to do that. Um, so this passage, it's not necessarily a, a call to go, you know, hit the streets, hit the bricks, and start soul winning right away. It's rather an encouragement to learn from the example of these disciples how Christ can make you into something that would honestly surprise you in several years looking back on how the Lord has used you. And so let's look at these two commitments that the Lord is calling us to make so that he can use us to reach the world, to be the light of the world. The first commitment we see is obviously that we must leave the world behind. A successful evangelist is someone who has broken from the world, at least in his heart. So let's look at what this meant for these men in particular. Uh, well, we have to ask, well, where, where were they and what, what were they being called to leave behind, first of all? Uh, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, a pleasantly warm climate. Some of you might love living in this kind of place. It's like Florida. 
uh, for some people. Uh, Pleasantly warm, ideal farming conditions, a flourishing fishing industry. Some people think that because they were fishermen, they assume, oh, these were like ditch diggers. These were common day laborers. They, you know, they were dirt poor. Uh, It's most people, most scholars think the opposite is true. Uh, We find uh, people, ancient, ancient people, in different cities, talking about the fishing industry of Galilee, these fish were actually exported to Egypt and Syria and other places. So the staple food in the Greco-Roman world was fish. So most, if you were a well-to-do person, you would be usually eating fish for your meal of some sort. And so this was a, a very successful region for fishing. And even the towns around the lake they, were na- they all had fish in the name, House of Fish, uh, The Fisher, uh, Salted Fish. That's even how some of the names are translated of the towns there. Their father, Zebedee, right, they had a family business. Their father could afford to hire servants. You see that in verse 20. And there's, a, there's also an interesting hint in the Gospel of John that John, the man here, uh, in verse 19, he was somehow connected to the high priest. It says he was known to the high priest. That's how he was able to enter into the, the courtroom of the high priest during Christ's trial. And so when we piece all these together, we see these were not, I mean, they weren't the ultra wealthy. They weren't the elites, but they were not the bottom. They were not the bottom of the social uh, ladder either. They were comfortable middle-class businessmen is the best way of putting it. Uh, In other words, they had a reasonably comfortable life for their time. So just think whatever your idea of a comfortable life in 21st century America, they probably had a similar existence. But Jesus now walks up to them in in the middle of a busy work day, in the middle of their work day, as they were busy repairing their nets, fixing their nets, their minds preoccupied with the day's business, probably moaning and groaning about their lack of a catch the night before. Jesus just walks up and says, follow me. Pretty astounding. Uh, The account, it's such a brief account, we could be, we could kind of gloss over that, but this would have been shocking for them. I mean, imagine someone walking up to you as you're going about your business. You're sitting at the desk with your computer or you're out in the field. Someone just walks up to you and says, quit your job right now and follow me. You're going to be my disciple now. Jesus has a shocking authority. Mark is emphasizing his shocking authority over men. And it's not just over demons, not just the power to heal diseases, but it's the power to influence men as well. In that culture, uh, you, this is not how a rabbi would have gathered his group of disciples. Uh, a rabbi would be, would be open to having disciples, but if you wanted to study with a rabbi, you would sign up for that. You would have to go to him and say, I would like to apply to be your student, and that's how that would work. But Jesus is not a rabbi. He is not like the rabbis of his day. He walks up to the people that he wants to use and sovereignly commands them to quit 
to drop everything and to follow him. And the night before he would go to the cross, he told the, the apostles in the upper room, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's, that would be so important for them to remember as they would, go, they would go out into the world and suffer for him and go through seasons where they didn't experience much success, uh, where they were persecuted and, and forsaken by people that ought to have been their supporters and companions and friends. They would remember those words, the Lord chose me for this work. The Lord called me to this work. He called them to leave their possessions. Uh, we see that they were casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. It says they left their net. Right? They left their nets and followed him. They left their boats with their father. Uh, what they had previously obsessed over and cared for every day, all of a sudden they were being called in an instant to drop. You know, the things that preoccupy your attention now, those are no longer to be your obsession. You are, you are to have a new obsession now. He called them to leave their careers. So this was not just work anyone could do. I imagine if any one of us tried to do this kind of fishing, we would look like fools. Uh, it, was, uh, it required a fair amount of skill. So they had a casting net that would have been 20 feet in diameter, in, yeah, diameter. Uh, when it was fully expanded, and there were weights around it, and the fishermen would, would hold it together. A single man would take the net and throw it in a way. It would be bunched up, but he would throw it in such a way that it unfurled in the air and then landed perfectly flat on the water. And then the weights around it would sink and form a bell shape, entrapping the fish under it. Uh, the fishermen would then have to dive into the water and pull the weights closed, right, to trap the fish there, and then they'd pull it to shore. The point being that they trained for this. This was a family business. This is what their dad had been doing, maybe their grandfather as well. Uh, they had been doing this. They were earning a comfortable living, we can safely assume. They were already fully trained. They were out of college. They probably didn't go to college, of course, but uh, the rough equivalent, right? They had already trained for their profession. So what they had spent their whole life investing in and doing and preparing for, Jesus said all of a sudden, quit. Quit. He also called them to leave their homes. Uh, we learn that these men were from this region. They were probably near Capernaum at this point. But if you looked at a, a Bible atlas and you looked at where all the cities are, I mean, it's like a mile away from where they grew up in Bethsaida. Uh, Peter and Andrew, at least, they were from a small fishing village just right next to where they were. This was their home. I mean, some of us are so attached to our home, we can't imagine ever leaving our, our dear home. All my little grandbabies are here. Uh, my grandfather was here. He built this town, da, da, da. But all of a sudden, leave. I mean, they wouldn't actually leave their region for a while. Jesus would remain in the region for some time. But these men did eventually go to places like Rome, to Greece, Syria, and other places. Jesus was saying, I know you love your home, but I'm, I'm calling you. Leave your home. Leave your, leave your father, even, your father Zebedee. 
Leave your family business. The point is that Jesus has the supreme authority to enlist whoever he wants. He has the authority to enlist anyone in his army. We've had to do the draft in this country a number of times for different wars, and we, moan and, we may moan and groan about that, but the fact is, if our, if our national security is threatened, and there's a world war, well, what else are we going to do? If people aren't signing up, there has to be people to defend our country. Well, in the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of everything, the Lord of your life, has the authority to call you into anything. And he, okay, you're not a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee in the year 30 AD, of of course. Uh, He's not calling you to be an apostle to Rome or to Greece, probably. But he has the authority and he has the right to call you wherever he would want to call you. And so what does this mean for us? It means that uh, we need to be ready to immediately abandon anything and everything that keeps us from obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I frame the message in the text in terms of Christ preparing us for evangelism. Right? Many of us want to be more successful or mo- want to be more bold, want to be more active in that way. Uh, but we can, we can get tied up thinking it's a matter of skill. Well, I just don't know the right techniques. I haven't been to Bible school yet. Well, yeah, we need to learn and we can be more effective in our communication. But we can't neglect the heart of the, of the issue here. A lot of the times we are, uh, we are not as active as we should be in ministry, evangelism, or anything else because of a heart issue. Not mainly because of an intellectual issue. So when Jesus calls you to become his disciple, he's calling you to be willing to immediately abandon anything that keeps you from fully obeying him. And so we do have to be a little cautious before we, we apply this to our lives. I'm sure some of you have been to missions conference conferences. Uh, ha- has anyone been to a, a missions conference where you, the speaker where, you know, is riling everyone up and it's all these college kids and oh, there's this many millions of people without the gospel and this many cultures without the Bible translated in their language and there's so few people and, and you know, we have all the money here. There's just no one to, to send to places and who's going to go? You all, you all go. Even if you're unconverted, even if you don't know anything about the Bible, I mean, go, you're a missionary now. I'm ordaining you basically and that's the thrust of it. We want to be a little careful. So God is not, like I said, God is not calling you probably to go to the heart of Africa and the Congo. Maybe, maybe he is. We don't know. But we do want to exercise some sound judgment in applying this to us because it was unique for them. These men would be apostles. There's no more apostles today, just in case you were wondering. Uh, these men were unique. He, would call the, they, he was calling them to preach. He was training them to preach and to lead the churches, to plant churches, and to write the New Testament. So the Apostle John, for example, he would write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. Quite a lot of the, of the Bible, of the New Testament. Peter, uh, he would write two epistles in the New Testament. But he was also the companion of Mark, to the man that wrote this Gospel we're reading now. And there's pretty credible evidence that uh, Mark is recording Peter's preaching. So what we're studying here in the Gospel of Mark is Mark's 
summary of what Jesus would have been preaching as he was going to Rome and other places. And so the Lord would use these men in unique ways, ways that we are not going to be used in a one-to-one way. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, we don't have to turn there, but there's, there's a principle there where some people, when they become Christians, they realize, well, I'm married to an unbeliever. Oh, and I'm a, I'm in, I'm a slave, because a lot of people were slaves in the, in the ancient world. And they thought, well, I should get a divorce from my unbelieving wife. I should uh, get, a new, get a new job or, or run away from, from my master and, and things like that. And Paul's counsel to them was, in general, while it is exciting to become a Christian, the Lord generally expects you to remain in the condition that you are. Okay, so for most Christians... Becoming a Christian will not mean, you know, packing everything up and moving to China or getting a divorce, right? You, you should never seek a divorce except for very extenuating circumstances. But, but the Lord would want us to remain in the condition that we're called, most of us. But still, uh, he does call us to be willing to do this, what these men did. Turn to Luke 14, verse 26. And this, this proves that point, that this is not just limited to the apostles. Well, Jesus may not call all of us to make the same sacrifice. He's calling all of us to be willing, to be willing to make the same sacrifice. Luke 14, verse 26. Well, look at verse 25. It says, Now many crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Okay, so... If you're into church growth, here's a great opportunity. There's this huge crowd following Jesus. And what does he say to him? He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so, if you were to say, well, it's really noble what these men did, abandoning everything to follow Christ, to be trained by him, to be evangelists, I'm not quite ready to make that commitment. If the Lord asked me to do that, I'm not quite there yet. Well, Jesus would say that you are not yet a disciple. That there's a, a high bar, there's a high standard for being a disciple. That by comparison, in comparison with your love for him, you need to hate your own family. So if he calls you to do something that would estrange you from your family, that might be what he calls you to do. And in many cultures, I was just reading about uh, the, the, some of the first missionaries to India. I mean, the, the Indian people were very friendly toward the missionaries there, and they would they would even hear them preach and smile and nod and help them do things. But as soon as Indian people started actually converting, the people turned on them, right? And they said, well, no, now you're, you're taking people from our religion. Now you're taking our, the worshipers of our gods and that, and that caused animosity. One man, the first person that was baptized by William Carey, his wife immediately divorced him and left him with their children. 
Well, that, that man could have said, well, I'll be, a, I'll be a secret Christian. I'll still go to the temple and I'll try to, I'll try to appease everyone. But he understood. He understood Luke 14, verse 26, that when Christ called him to be a Christian, to be a disciple, he was calling him to be willing to break with absolutely anything in this world. Absolutely anything. Flip back to Mark. So we see that the Lord is likely not calling us all to this Hollywood-style missionary endeavor. I'm praying that God would raise people up in our church that would do things like that. If you want to go to India, you want to go to China or North Korea, you know, let's talk about how we can make that a reality, how we can test you and support you and get you training. But most of us will, will stay in Orland or Chico or some other town where we live and remain as Christians where we are. But still, the call is to be free from the world. The Apostle Paul would say, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world in the New Testament symbolizes the world system, the world's values. You know, you turn on the TV or social media, whatever's popular, that's, that's the world. The world's philosophy, the world's thinking, what the world loves, what the world enjoys. But Paul would say, the world has been crucified to me. Quite a picture. Crucifixion was the most gruesome and torturous form of execution in the history of mankind, where the victim would be nailed to a cross and raised up, and he would not actually bleed to death. He would, he would likely suffocate, or his, his heart would give out because of the tremendous amount of pain and, and stress uh, that was stressing his body. So in the Apostle Paul's mind, that was the world. He had placed the world on a cross, driven it into the cross with nails, and was now watching it bleed out and die. So when people offered him, you know, an easier life or comfort uh, or offered him compromise, he said, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so what do we need to do? What's the first commitment we need to make to be a successful evangelist? It's really this. This is the heart of that first commitment is we need to crucify the world. Uh, Jesus said, when all, all people speak well of you, is that a good thing? He said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. And he said, blessed are you when people insult you. So we may just not be willing to be viewed as a religious nut, which is frankly what some people will think of you as. Yeah, I mean, if you are more active, if you do speak up more, I, can, I promise you, people will think that of you. You will have that reputation. Uh, some of the evangelists in the 18th century, George Whitfield and John Wesley, uh, you know, there's political cartoons, right? So people would draw cartoons of these men making fun of them in the papers. And it's crazy. I mean, the... One, there's one picture of George Whitfield on a pulpit, and the pulpit's like 20 feet tall, and his head's bumping into the ceiling, and he looks like this crazy man, and John Wesley's over here with his hair all frizzled out. 
people, people would ridicule them. Uh, not everyone. It won't be a, a constant experience likely, but, but yeah, that's a commitment we need to be willing to make. Or we could be too attached to comforts. So maybe the, we know the Lord has gifted us for something. The Lord has gifted us to, to teach the Bible or to serve in some way or given us a heart for, for some ministry. But we know that will, that will likely lead us to parting ways with our comfortable life. My life is very comfortable right now. I have my, my heating and AC. I have a job that pays well. I have everything in order. I'm going to retire when I'm 63, a few years early. I'm all set. But if I really pursued Christ's mission, if I really took that calling more seriously and was more active, I may have to part ways with my comfort. Uh, again, in, in, the, in the ministry of, of William Carey in India in the, in the 1700s, a man actually convinced him to move to India named Dr. Thomas. Uh, Dr. Thomas told William Carey, yeah, it's so great in India. Uh, it's so easy to get a job, and there's just throngs of people that want to join the church and become Christians and be baptized. All we need is a few people to move there. And William Carey said, great, sign me up, let's go. And so he, he moved to India with his wife. Dr. Thomas's wife and children were already in India waiting for him. And so as William Carey started to plan, you know, how are we going to build a mission? How are we going to reach people? How are we going to preach? How are we going to pay our bills? Uh, one day he visited Dr. Thomas, and he discovered that Dr. Thomas had bought a mansion. He had bought a mansion, and he was employing 12 servants. And William Carey was saying, what? What's, what's this? What's going on here? I thought we were going to go into the jungle. I thought we were going to, you know, live in mud huts and bring the gospel to the, to the heathen. What, what are you doing in this mansion with all these servants and whatnot? And the guy said, well, you know, I talk, talked with my wife about it, and, you know, she really likes the English community here in India because there's the East India Trade Company, and there's a fairly wealthy group of English people here. Oh, we don't really want to you know, we don't really want to be missionaries anymore. Um, you know, that would give us a weird reputation. Uh, we really like our mansion. We really like the 12 servants. And we like it so much, we actually borrowed money in the name of our mission, our missionary business. Okay, so easy for us to condemn him, but wh what about us? Which one are we? Right, are we... Are we Dr. Thomas or are we William Carey? Maybe it's not necessary for us to live in a mud hut, but maybe it will become necessary. You may be surprised. So we see that the first commitment we have to make is to leave the world behind, to leave the whole world behind. As good as it is, as good as family is, as good as well-paying jobs are, savings, all of these comforts that God has given us to enjoy, we need to be willing to drop them and let God use us in new ways. The second commitment we need to make is to follow Jesus. Uh, very common words in the church, and that's coming right out of his mouth. He walks up to them. The only words he says in the passage, follow me 
and I will make you become fishers of men. He did not say, go to Rome. Okay, you're saved. You repented. You believed. You're hereby ordained as an apostle. You're ready. Go to Rome. Go to Samaria. Go to the uttermost parts of the world. No, so he was not calling them to be missionaries day one. He was saying, follow me, right? Not go pull up your own bootstraps, go figure it out on your own. But no, come with me and actually stay by my side for years. Learn from my example. Uh, talk with me. Uh, pray with me. Depend on me. Learn to trust me. See what it really means to do ministry. See what it really means to be an evangelist. They needed more than just knowledge. They needed to be trained. They needed training. Uh, they didn't just need more information. They didn't just need to, to become Bible experts, although they would need to know God's word in a deeper way. But their hearts also needed to be reformed. And they would see firsthand what love is. Uh, and there's many people, there's many people that would call themselves Christians that they would put us to shame by how evangelistic they are. You may know some people where they are just on fire for God, always preaching the gospel, bringing hundreds of people to Christ, seems like all the time. But it's short-lived. It's short-lived. And as soon as some, some difficulty comes up or, or there's some disagreement in their group, they're done or they move on. And there's many people like this where they, they call themselves missionaries. They go to the nations, but they just bounce around, right? And, and as soon as people disappoint them, they're, they're done. I'm going to move on. So to be an evangelist, it's more than just leaving the world behind and getting all excited. You need to actually love people. And the disciples would see the Lord Jesus Christ loving people. Loving them, healing them, speaking with them, encouraging them, bringing the gospel to them. They would see him be crucified for them. And that would become their model for ministry. They would now have a, a cross-shaped ministry, evangelistic ministry, as they imitated their Lord. But they were also to go on, they would also go on to extraordinary success. Notice that Jesus says, follow me and perhaps I may be able to use you for something. He says, follow me and I will make you. I will make you into fishers of men. Once fully trained, Christ would commission them to take the gospel to the nations. And they would enjoy tremendous success. We could even say it was the most, the first Christian sermon was possibly the most successful sermon ever preached. Peter preached that sermon on Pentecost, resulting in 3,000 conversions. A mega church overnight was formed. Shortly after that, 2,000 more were added to the church, the book of Acts tells us. And in Acts, the author Luke, he sprinkles in all these statements summarizing the extraordinary success and progress of the gospel through the early church. 
He says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, even the priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. A few chapters later, he says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So the history tells us they did actually experience success. Christ did make them into fishers of men. And when he was with them, Christ repeatedly reminded them of their, the certainty of success. Uh, remember, he said, the harvest is plentiful. The problem is that there's a, there's a lack of a harvest. The problem is the lack of laborers. There's just not enough people to go out and gather all the harvest. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. He also said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And he, called, he told these men to be fishers of men. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 5. This is a parallel passage actually describing the same account. It's when he called these four men. Gives us a bit more detail. Luke chapter 5, verse 4. So he, he's approached these, uh, these four men. He's been teaching the crowds. Uh, Luke 5, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Simon Peter, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we labored all night and caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to sink. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish, which they had taken. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, were also likewise amazed. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So it gives us some additional detail. Christ didn't just walk up and call them. He actually first miraculously caused them to catch an enormous amount of fish. Uh, Peter was not a fool. He knew how to fish. He knew, okay, you don't fish in the middle of the afternoon. And he knew that this was indeed a miracle. And he was stunned. And he was amazed. And he knew that the power of God had resulted in that catch of fish. Why do you think Jesus did that? Why do you think Jesus didn't just walk up to Peter and say, I want to use you to, to preach the gospel to the world and, and trust me, it'll, it'll go well. Why do you think he did this miracle for him? Why do, you think Luke record, why do you think the Holy Spirit recorded it for us? Well, as Peter would go to the nations with the gospel, he would have this image in his mind. Oh, I'm not going to, I can't catch anything here. It's not the right time. It's not the right place. But the Lord miraculously caused that huge amount of fish to be caught against all odds. 
And so that would be the picture in his mind. Uh, what made him so courageous? What made the apostles so courageous? Wasn't it the certainty that they would have success? Isn't that why people are, are sometimes timid? We think, what, what is this really going to do? If I share the gospel, if I proclaim Christ in this context, what, what's really going to happen? We're lacking faith, in other words. Uh, we, lack, we lack the faith that God will actually use us to do this. All the evidence in Scripture leads me to conclude that, uh, that any Christian that would devote himself to evangelism in whatever capacity the Lord has enabled him or gifted him or given him opportunities— will have success. So it's quite a statement. I'm saying if you commit yourself to the work, I promise you, based on Scripture, based on all these passages and many more, that there will be people in heaven because of you, because God has used you as an instrument. I mean, and if you're honest with, you, with yourself, and you've been a Christian for a number of years— Hasn't God already used you? If you were honest, hasn't God already used you to bring people to Christ? I know I could, I could name specific examples even in this church in the brief time that I've been here when God has used you all to bring people to the Savior. So all the evidence leads us to conclude that like the apostles, we too will enjoy success and even extraordinary success that would surpass our expectations. But this would not be without cost for these men. Simon and uh, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, uh, while they would be trained for the work, while Christ would make them effective and successful evangelists, they would not have an easy life. <laughs> uh, they have an easy life now. They're in glory, praise the Lord. But they would not have an easy life. Let me just tell you what, what became of these men. James uh, was apparently a very prominent uh, and well-known preacher in the early church. And he was so well-known in Jerusalem in the early church that he was one of the first people targeted by Herod Agrippa I. So in Acts, we read that James, the man here, the fish, who was once a fisherman, he was the first martyr among the apostles. So he was executed by a king in Jerusalem shortly after Christ descended for his ministry. Peter would go on to bring the gospel to the Jews in different places. He would go on to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, First Peter is written to those groups there. He would also end up in Rome, uh, ministering with the Apostle Paul for a time, and that's why the Roman Catholic Church has St. Peter's uh, they think, yeah, Peter went there and he was the first pope and, and etc. Uh, well, there is credible tradition that, that Peter was in Rome. And there's hints in the Bible as well that, that he was there for a decent period of time. But when the emperor Nero, who was insane, who was completely insane, uh, when he came to power in the 60s AD, he commanded for these men to be executed, for Peter and Paul to be executed. Peter said he was so unworthy to die in the same manner as the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually requested that he be crucified upside down. And that's why you see there's even paintings, famous paintings that you can see 
that picture this, the martyrdom of Peter, and it's them raising him, tilting him upside down on his cross. So he literally took up his cross as he followed Christ. The Apostle John alone would survive into old age without being martyred. But, again, there's fairly credible tradition in the early church we find that he was in Rome also for a time and he was plunged into boiling oil as an old man. And shortly after that, he was sent into exile on a small island called Patmos from which he would write the book of Revelation. So these men, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a romantic life that Christ was calling them to. They did drop everything. They were used mightily in, in the whole world. We still speak about them today, but it, it came with a cost. It came with the cost that Jesus told them about, that they would have to leave the world. But as they followed him, they would enjoy extraordinary success. Well, what, what is the, the main point for us? If you took nothing else away from this, this morning, I would want you to take this away, that the Lord... Jesus Christ can use even the weakest Christian for great things. Uh, he can use even the weakest Christian to bring the gospel to one, pe- one person, to a whole family, to a whole town, to a whole nation. Charles Spurgeon once said, O oh, you who see in yourselves at present nothing that is desirable, Come you and follow Christ for the sake of what he can make out of you. Do you not hear his sweet voice calling to you and saying, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And I would echo that. That I, I know you don't feel equipped. I know we all feel weak and we're not equipped uh, to, to even handle this little town we're in here. Right? To even bring the gospel to this little town. Well, I'm calling you and the Lord is calling you to have faith in him and to to learn from him, uh, but also to see all of your your Bible study, even what we're doing here as part of that that mission, right? We're gathering here. It's not just to, you know, get our own religious food, as good as that is. We want to be fed and we want to worship the Lord. That's our great priority. But the Lord is preparing us all here for ministry, That's what we're all about. And so because of that, because I do see a need for training, uh, I do want to make this a focus of our church specifically, uh, following this this brief period of membership. You know, we're we're talking about church membership this month. Well, sometime after that, maybe in the, the spring or early summer, I do want to shift our focus a bit and just come together and think, how can we be more effective together in our community? So I know we're all... Uh, we invite friends and family to church. We share the gospel as we're able, but I would love to have some more equipping on that as a church. I would love for us to be able to do that together in different ways uh, so we can see each other do this, some of us that may be more comfortable. So just know that, that this is on my, uh, on my thinking. It's on my heart. I wanted to provide training for you because we can't expect us all to be immediately Uh, apostle-level evangelists, of course. But let me finally appeal 
uh, to maybe a more direct application of this passage. I titled this sermon, The Call to Ministry, because the Lord Jesus Christ was calling men into vocational pastoral ministry. And you may not think that there's, you're a, a preacher, aspiring preacher. You may not think there's anyone at, that ch- at our church currently that may be working toward that. But this is really a, a crucial tone and priority that we need to set for our church from day one. I mean, the reason a church, the reason a pastor burns out, the reason a church, you know, decays over time and a pastor gets, he gets burned out and he retires, maybe he's just getting older and he needs to retire and no one is really there to take his place. Well, a big reason why that happens is the church has not done anything to inspire younger men to even think about considering ministry. Uh, We have not emphasized the importance of training men specifically for ministry. So even here, we want to have a strong leadership, and that's why I'm really focusing on the, the men's group. But even more specifically, preachers. Preachers. Biblical preaching, I think we'd all agree, is the desperate need of our world. That's what Jesus thought. I mean, he preached, and what did he do besides preaching? Train preachers. He did more than that, of course, but those were his great priorities. He prioritized training a few men to take the gospel message to the world and to lead the church. So if biblical preaching is the desperate need of the world at this moment, just as it has always been, then that means that preachers are the most desperate need of of the world. So that's not egotistical. That's just trying to reason plainly from what we're reading here and from the priorities of Christ. What kind of preachers do we want and what kind of preachers should we be praying for? And if that's on your mind, what does that mean? Well, it means that we don't just need crazy preachers, you know, people that are fireballs. That's great. We want passion. We want zeal. But we need trained qualified preachers. We need trained and qualified men. The Lord, that's what he did. He trained these men for ministry. Uh, Some of us may think, well, yeah, seminary, there's no Bible verse that says you need to have a seminary degree to go to go into pastoral ministry. And that's true. You don't need a seminary degree to be a pastor, to be a preacher. But I would argue that what the Lord Jesus Christ did with these men over the course of a few years is pretty similar to what a seminary seeks to do with its students. And so we do, we do have a preference for that here. But all that to say, we don't, we don't need more, we don't just need more preachers, we don't just need more people, uh, you know, droning uh, in front of churches, right? We need qualified and trained men. And even if you are not, don't feel called to, to do that, I mean, you can encourage people you know, if you know someone or if, or if the Lord does raise up people here in our church, you can help that, <clears throat> you can help provide for that need by encouraging those men, supporting them, helping them figure out how can I get trained? How can we get this man training, even though that seems to be an impossibility for him uh, financially? So we can all do that. It really needs to be a priority of our church. It may seem like putting the cart before the horse, and yeah, it is pretty pretty early on, but we need to to have that priority. 
Well, to conclude, we've seen what it means to be a successful evangelist. And we've seen it's more to the story. There's more to the story than just, hey, hit the streets, right? Go, here's your stack of tracks, go hit the streets. No, we need, we need training. We all need training, whether we're preachers or not. Uh, we need to be trained, and the Lord, as he trains us, he is going to be able to use us more and more, and we can expect success as, as we do that and commit to his training. Uh, I love that line from Martin Luther's hymn. He said, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. So he, he gave up quite a lot to be what he was in the Reformation, uh, preaching the biblical gospel. And that's what we need to be. We need to shake ourselves free from the world so that we are free for the Lord to use us. We just can't expect to, to live the kind of life we lived before we came to Christ. Uh, we will have difficulties. But we can be encouraged because this passage and the history of the early church tells us that the weaker the better. So if you think, no, I'm too weak, well, honestly, the weaker the better. The weaker you are, the more glory Christ will receive when he uses you for ministry. And so we can be confident that he will do that. If we would only part ways with the world in our heart and remain committed to him and learn from him. Our Father, we are thankful for the encouragement that you've given us in your word to be active in ministry and to be faithful to bring the treasure of the gospel to those who are in darkness. We pray that we would be a healthy church, a Bible-teaching church, but also that we would not swing the pendulum so far that we develop a hard heart toward those that do not know you, toward the world. I pray that we would not be content to just have a, a small group and a small Bible study here uh, without really going to the poor people that are in their sin, that are still spiritually blind. We confess to you that we have loved this world too much and that we probably have not been as useful to you because we have insisted on certain comforts. We have insisted on pleasing all people and trying to do that and finding it to be impossible. We pray that you would give us humility. We pray you would give us courage to be willing to be like these men in the early church, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, to be willing to suffer for the gospel, uh, to be willing to take up our cross as we follow the Lord. Please teach us. Please expose idolatry in our hearts uh, that is keeping us from being, more, from being more effective, fishers of men. And then as we commit ourselves to that in a new way, please give us success. Uh, we are convinced that you have promised us success, and we do have a desire to see men and women and children saved. And so we pray that you would uh, encourage us and give us a zeal for this work. Uh, we pray that you would bless all of your people this morning as we go from here, go to our homes and rest, or visit with others, or maybe work. 
We pray that you would go with us and support us, provide for us, and grant that we may be holy just as you are holy. Uh, Help us to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.